Good morning, Melanie Park Church family, and a special welcome to those who may be joining us online and meeting us for the first time. We hope that when we are able to meet together that you might come and join us. We'd love to introduce you to our family and friends and uh, know that you're welcome. Uh, this morning we're going to finish up uh, the Paul's letter to uh, first letter to the Thessalonians. And as we do, I want us to take a step back and see the big picture of the remarkable work that God is doing in this young Thessalonian church. Let's think back to when they first received the word, as Paul says, in the midst of much tribulation. When most people were rejecting what Paul had to say, these people were willing to listen. And not just listen, they were willing to admit that they were sinners in need of a Savior. And despite fierce opposition, they have stood firm in their faith. And not just stood firm, this young church is actually flourishing. They've developed a reputation all throughout Macedonia. People talk about their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfast hope. This church, filled with new converts, has become an example of what it looks like to, to walk in faithful obedience. And they're doing all of it together. They are deeply connected to one another. We've seen their grief and concern for those who have died. Some of whom, as we've talked about, likely were put to death because of their faith. So Paul reminds them of the assurance of Christ's return. He turns their attention from their present suffering to a future promise. It certainly doesn't take all the pain away, but it does help renew their hope. A hope that the dead in Christ will not be forgotten. And that those who remain alive in Christ will not endure God's wrath. These are the attributes of a church filled with new believers. That's what's remarkable. But I think there may be something really important that would help explain this growth. Their faith has deepened because of the distress that they have endured. The crucible of suffering is something that often creates exponential growth if our heart is in the right place, which doesn't mean we want to invite suffering into our lives, but when suffering does come, and it will, there's opportunities there. Let me give you an example from the life of Joseph. I was reminded about this recently, and I think it's important. If you were to look at Joseph's early life, and you were kind of, kind of track that out as a trajectory as to where he might end up someday, if you looked at just his early life, you would have to come to the conclusion that Joseph would grow up to be very selfish and arrogant. His dad was playing favorites. Joseph got all the special gifts, all the special attention, all the special protection. I mean, his brothers were out working in the field, and he was at home drinking a latte. I mean, he had the easy life, right? Even when he goes and explains the dream that he had to his dad and brothers, I'm not so sure that it was with a sincere heart of humility. I think there was some entitlement there. I mean, why wouldn't that happen? Because as far as Joseph is concerned, the whole world has revolved around him. You see, the only way 
that Joseph develops a heart of humility is through the crucible of suffering. It was humility that led him to a place of forgiveness and reconciliation with his brothers. It was humility that taught him how to rely on the Lord no matter how much suffering he endured. See, this is not the same story if Joseph doesn't have to go through some really hard times in his life. I believe that's why we see such exponential growth in this young Thessalonian church. This is what it looks like to grow in faithfulness no matter what's going on. As Paul closes out his letter, he's going to instruct them how to excel still more. Their strength was in their collective resolve, a shared responsibility to care for one another. So Paul lays out a plan for them to remain strong. What we will look at this morning are the steps to becoming a church that thrives. A church that continues to grow in their faith no matter what the circumstances might be. These are steps to becoming a healthy church. And I think for that reason, it's really important for us to apply these very same steps as well. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you, we want to recognize that we don't ever want to receive truth from your word that we don't apply to our lives. And so this morning, as we look at these steps to growing in faithfulness, would you help us see how we might apply these in, to our daily lives? Help us see what it looks like to, to live a life that honors you, that brings glory to your name, so that when people see us, they each actually see the, the life of Christ at work within us. Lord, would you use your word through the work of your spirit to transform our lives this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So before we look at our passage, I want you to kind of picture our walk through this passage like steps in growth towards faithfulness. And as we walk along these steps in this path, we want to make sure that we don't skip any steps. In fact, each time we take a step, we want to pause long enough to appreciate what that means. So let's take that first step together. If you would, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And Paul says in verse 12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Well, I admit, this is a little bit awkward for a leader to talk about what it means to respect your leaders. But here's the good news. I don't have to. I don't have to because you as a church family at Melanie Park Church do this incredibly well. I could not imagine being in a place where I would be more loved and appreciated than I am right here. In fact, I want you to know that I consider it my privilege and my honor to be your pastor, because you do this well. But I want you to think about this in the context of this young Thessalonian church. See, the most mature Christians in this church are at best two years old in the faith. Nobody has a great deal of experience, 
but somebody has to lead because God designed his church to exist under the shepherding care of elders. And it appears that there were some in the Thessalonian church who were serving in this capacity and not because they were running for office. (laughs) They were just faithful to serve. And so Paul tells them to encourage It encourages them to to follow the lead of these people as these people followed the Lord. He tells them to listen to their instruction and appreciate their devotion. And that last sentence in verse 13 is the key. Look at that again. It says, live in peace with one another. So the very best way that you can love your leaders is to live in peace with one another. Don't make their life any more difficult than it has to be because it's hard to teach and serve if you spend all your time resolving conflict. A healthy church is one that is marked by peace, so be peaceful. With that being said, that doesn't mean that a healthy church doesn't have any conflict. In fact, I would go so far as to say if they don't have conflict, they're probably not a healthy church. I've said before, when I talk to couples who are married and I ask them how they deal with conflict in their marriage, if I I ask them that question, they say, oh, we don't have any conflict. We agree with everything. We get along great. We don't have any problems. I'm thinking, number one, you're lying. And number two, you don't have a healthy marriage. And the same is true for a church. It's not the absence of conflict that determines health. It's how you work through conflict that matters. So when conflict arises, our attitudes and behaviors should reflect our new life in Christ. I think we see that best in Ephesians 4.32. I mentioned this verse last week, but it's so clear. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So, So here's the principle here. If God is holding something against you, You can hold it against them. But since the Scripture tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, what that tells us is we need to learn how to forgive in any and all situations. Be peaceful. Which then leads to the next step, be patient. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, be patient with all men. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. I love these two verses because they pretty much cover the full spectrum of anything you might encounter. First, it says, admonish the unruly. Some translations say undisciplined or disorderly. I would describe this as careless Christians whose habits in life are hurtful to themselves and to others. Their behavior is disrupted because there is a sinful pattern in their life. In these cases, Paul says, step in to admonish. That word means to instruct. These are situations where you really don't want to dance around the issue. You need to lovingly admonish someone who is practicing a hurtful habit. Let me give you an example. 
Let's say that my wife Terry and I decide to have dinner one night with Doug and Sherry McAlpine. And we're enjoying our conversation and laughing and having a good time. But from time to time, I'll say something to tease my wife that is a little bit hurtful. Now, I'm oblivious, but Doug can see some of the angst in her eyes. And as the night goes on, I do it two or three times. Well, see, Doug wouldn't be a good friend to me if he didn't pull me aside at some point and say, hey, I think some of those words that you were using were really hurtful to your wife. A good friend is going to point out where, where I'm wrong. We need to lovingly admonish one another when we find or see a hurtful habit. Admonish the unruly. And then Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. Notice we have a different situation here that, de- that is determined by a, a different approach. In the first example, I was just being a jerk, right? Well, in this example, we're dealing with someone who's having a hard time. In fact, some translations say, encourage the discouraged. In this situation, you don't want to shoot the wounded because they too may be in a a difficult place. Maybe there is a sinful habit, but the difference here is they want change. The only problem is they don't know how, for that, how that's going to happen. They're discouraged. This is where you come along somebody and you walk through it with them and show them a different path. In the first situation, you, you really want to stand in their way. Just stop. We need to talk and, and have a conversation. You need to lovingly admonish. But in this situation, you want to come alongside them and say, I'm going to come with you. And we're going to walk down a different path. Then in this third situation, I think you kind of want to pick these people up and carry them with you. This is where you encourage those who are in a really difficult place. Maybe they're in a place where there is no easy answer. They just need some words of hope. Maybe they've experienced the loss of a spouse or a child. They really don't need somebody to tell them, it's going to be okay, you'll get through this. That's really not helpful. They really need somebody to come alongside them and say, this is so hard, but I'm going to be with you, and I'm not going to leave you. The Lord is good. There is great hope in knowing that you don't have to walk through hard times alone. So admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And then it says, be patient with all men. And that's key because it applies to everything he just said. Be patient with the unruly. Be patient with the discouraged. Be patient with the weak. There are no easy fixes in life. And transformation always takes time. So be patient in all situations. And he goes on and says, and don't repay evil for evil. I believe the patient carries over into this one as well. Even when you're wronged, be slow to respond. Like like James reminds us, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. I love the way Paul describes it in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. He uses the same words. He says, repay no one evil for evil. But he goes on and says, but give thought. In other words, pause. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all men. You see, people are watching. 
And you call yourself a Christian, so they want to see how you respond. It goes on and says, if possible, as far as it depends on you. In other words, it really doesn't matter what the other person does or does not do. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Remember, our attitudes and behaviors need to reflect our new life in Christ. So instead of a knee-jerk reaction, give thought to do what is honorable to God. Don't hold grudges or carry bitterness even Jesus tells us, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. That is a uniquely Christian idea. And that's how they'll know that you've been saved by the one who has been careful and gentle and forgiving with you. Be peaceful. Be patient. And then it says, be joyful. Look at verse 16. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. To rejoice always is someone who is literally filled with joy. And I believe the second part of this verse explains how the first part is possible. Let me give you a couple of verses to explain what I mean. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says, In your presence, God, is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21, verse 6 says something very similar. It says, you make him joyful with gladness in your presence. I could give several more examples, but the key here is to understand that true and lasting joy is found only in the presence of God. But here's the key. We cannot enter into the presence of God apart from Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in this passage, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross that allows us to enter into the throne of God's grace. Joy comes from a heart that is filled with gratitude for all that God has done in Christ Jesus. And the only way we lose our joy is if we lose sight of that truth. You see, God's will for us is to live a life filled with joy. Jesus told his disciples, and as a disciple in Christ, he would tell us, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that, now get this, my joy, the joy of Jesus, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. We cannot have fullness of joy apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Be patient. Be peaceful. Be joyful. And then be careful. Look at verse 19. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Remember, this is a church of young Christians trying to understand what it means to follow Christ. They have to rely on the Spirit to understand God's Word and to understand God's 
will for their life. And like any church, there's probably a lot of opinions about what that looks like. And so Paul says, examine everything carefully. Cling to what is good and abstain from that which is evil. Allow people to to live out of their divinely ordained gifts. Don't quench the Spirit. But at the same time, don't just accept everything you hear. When someone has a word from the Lord, you need to make sure it lines up with God's word. Be like the Bereans, like we saw in Acts chapter 17, when it says that they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Anything good is going to be found in God's Word. And if it's not in God's Word, then you need to let it go. God never contradicts what His Word says is true. Be peaceful. Be patient. Be joyful. Be careful. And then finally, be hopeful. Look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I want you to notice who is ultimately responsible for your work of salvation. This is where you're going to find your hope, so look very carefully. Paul says, God will sanctify you. He will preserve you. He will present you blameless and complete. It even goes on and says, faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. You see, Your salvation from start to finish is a gracious work of God. That's why Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, he who began a good work in you, he is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Our entire Christian life is a response of faith to God's loving initiative. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10, and says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And here's the key, which he prepared beforehand so that we can walk in them. Doesn't that bring you a great deal of hope knowing that your salvation is not in your hands? That he is the one who is doing the good work in you. So look to him and trust in him. That's why the writer of Proverbs in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. And listen to what He'll do. He'll make your path straight. You can trust Him for that. So as we finish up this morning, I want us to give some consideration to how we can grow in faithfulness in each of these steps. Now, this won't take long, so stay with me on this. Let's look at that first step together. Let's start with what it means to be peaceful. An important way to grow in peace is to routinely practice forgiveness. Okay? Let me say that again. An important way to grow in peace is to routinely practice 
forgiveness. And remember, forgiveness is ultimately up to you and God. It's between the two of you. It does not require a response from another person. Okay? It doesn't matter if they forgive you or if they show a heart of repentance or feel sorry for what they've done. Forgiveness is ultimately between you and God. It's a decision to release your claim on justice and to trust in Him to do what is right. Believing that the same forgiveness that you've received for your sin also applies to the sins that have been committed against you. And this does not minimize the hurtful effects of sin against you. What it does mean is that you don't have to carry the bitterness with you. You can let go and trust God to do what is right. Grow in peace by routinely practicing forgiveness. That's the first one. The second one is grow in patience by developing a habit of prayer. Paul says to pray without ceasing, and that's not just mumbling words throughout the day that are meaningless. Instead, I believe what this means is that you are consistently mindful of God's presence in your life all throughout the day, and that you realize you can speak to him, that you have a relationship with him that allows you to talk to him at any point in the day. Could be when you are on your way to a meeting. Could be on your way home in your car as you turn off the radio and just begin to talk to God. It could be, as I've learned lately, in the middle of the night when you can't sleep and you can't think of anything that you need to do, then take that time to pray for people. I've found that when I do that, it helps me fall asleep. And then when I wake up again, I happen to remember where I left off last. And I just keep praying for the next person. So in order to be peaceful or to be patient, develop a heart of prayer. The next one is, if you want to grow in joy, let me encourage you to do something really simple that I've found to be very helpful. Consider keeping what I call a gratitude journal. I actually have an app on my phone that's a it's for notes. And all throughout the day, as I see something for which I am grateful, I just write it down in my notes. Big or small, doesn't matter. It may be the beauty of a sunrise one morning. It could be a conversation I had with a friend. Or when friends came over and, and played games and we laughed and had a good time together. I'm grateful for that. The other day I wrote that I was grateful for the sound of a cardinal that I could hear singing in my backyard. That's what we want to do. A regular practice of gratitude will reshape how you view life. So if you want to grow in joy, develop a heart of gratitude. The next one is be careful. And this one's pretty simple too. If you want to discern truth from error, then saturate your life in truth. You've heard the illustration before about how you determine counterfeit money. You don't study the counterfeit. You study the real one in such fine detail that you instantly know when a counterfeit comes your way. Study God's Word so intently that you can tell when something comes along and it just doesn't line up. Finally, learn to be hopeful by fixing your eyes on Jesus. I love the words of that great hymn, our hope is fixed on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, there's that word, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. If Jesus had to look to a future joy to endure present suffering, if that's true for him, then how much more is that true for us? Here's a good place to start. I would encourage you at some point to pull out your Bible and look at Ephesians chapter 1 and read the first 14 verses. And here's the key. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you read those verses, I want you to understand those verses are describing you. You have been chosen by the Father. You've been saved by the Son. You've been sealed by the Spirit. And that verse will tell you that sealing of the Spirit is a guarantee, God's guarantee that he will fulfill what he has begun. As we close in this last song, let me encourage you to, after singing, not just depart and go about your day, but take a moment to pause. And I want you to consider the steps that we've walked through, steps of growing in faithfulness. And just pick one, just one that you feel like you can grow in most. And then spend some time visiting together about some of the practical ways that you might do that. Maybe you want to start keeping a gratitude journal. Or maybe you want to begin to be more prayerful in your day. Whatever that looks like. But here's the final thing, and this is important. Make sure you share that with other people. You see, growing in faithfulness as a Christian is a group project. We do this together. If you look at the Thessalonian church, they had a shared responsibility to care for one another, which is why they stood so strong in their faith. And what's true for them is equally true for us. So let me pray, and then we'll close in song. Lord, thank you for just the practical truth of your word. Thank you for just the the little things that we can do that make a big difference in how we relate to you, how we relate to others. And so, Father, as we sing and then spend some time visiting, help us see uh, through the work of your Spirit ways in which we can grow in faithfulness. What steps of faith can we take um, in the coming weeks? Thank you, Lord, for our time together. And we pray this in your name. Amen.